0: If you see a divided government after tomorrow, meaning if one or two houses of Congress end up being controlled by the Democrats, you may see more of a debate about the limits of what the campaign against terrorism should look like around the world.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Georgetown Public Policy Review Podcast. I'm interview editor John Barfield. I had the distinct pleasure of sitting down with the Honorable Erin C. Connington, who is currently a visiting professor at the U.S. Army War College. From March 2010 until December 2012, she served first as Undersecretary of the Air Force and then as Secretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. Prior to that, she served nine years on the staff, and then as staff director of the House Armed Services Committee. Before going to the Hill, she was research staff director for the Hart-Rudman Commission. Our conversation was recorded the day before the 2018 midterm elections, and Aaron and I talked about some of the implications that a shift in political power might have on the narrative surrounding national security. Our conversation was a true pleasure for me, and I hope that you enjoyed it as well. And now, an interview with Aaron Connaughton. Aaron, thank you for being here with us today.
0: My pleasure, John.
1: Um, as many of our listeners know by now, GPPR's spring theme is rethinking governance. Mm-hmm. And this theme seems particularly relevant to the topic of national security and military readiness. The paradigm of national security in the 20th century developed out of two world wars and a cold war that threatened nuclear disaster, and while the nuclear threat persists into the 21st century, New threats have emerged, including terrorism, cyber threats, and even political hacking, think Russia 2016. What emerging threats to national security are going to force us to rethink governance the most in the coming coming years?
0: Well, it's a great question and a very broad question. Um, We have continuing terrorist uh, threats ongoing in several parts of the world, and I think in contrast to some of the prior conflicts that you mentioned, World War One, World War II, and even the Cold War, all of those conflicts conflicts had a conclusion, either because of a negotiated treaty at the end of World War One and World War II, or in the case of the Cold War with the um, the fall of the Berlin Wall and then ultimately the breakup of the Soviet Union. We're in a an extended period of conflict Uh, with the um, terrorist threats in the Middle East, throughout Africa, and in other parts of the world. So one of the challenges I see, and you see the debate happening in Congress on an ongoing basis, is that uh, the conflicts that began first in Afghanistan, and then after the fall of the government in Iraq, with the growth of Al-Qaeda there and now with ISIS there, is that you have um, a conflict that started with an authorization to use force right after 9-11 that has now migrated around the world. And so there's a debate over what the limits are that the Congress on behalf of the American people actually authorized and how long, the American people will continue this effort. So particularly, you know, we're having this conversation the day before the midterm elections. If you see a divided government after tomorrow, meaning if one or two houses of Congress uh, end up being controlled by the Democrats, you may see more of a debate about the limits of um, what the campaign against terrorism should look like around the world. At the same time, uh, the president has laid out, President Obama before him, and the Congress, uh, particularly those members of Congress who focus on armed services and foreign relations, uh, have laid out the need to focus more on the Asia-Pacific, Indo-Pacific regions. Uh, partly because of China, um, and partly because of the concentration of trade and other um, important uh, national security interests that exist in that region. So you see a shift in defense dollars toward um, those priorities. And um, my hope is that we'll continue to see an emphasis on the relationships in that area, um, you know, the president has laid out uh, a national security strategy that emphasizes the strategic competition with China. Some of his speeches talk about uh, the importance of, of competing with China, but also talk about um, a bit of a withdrawal for the United States back towards uh, our home base. And I think it's critical as a part of our engagement. Uh, in order to deal with the strategic competition with China to ensure that our alliances and our um, relationships throughout Asia and with um, India remain very strong. So I think going into the spring, going into 2019, that's another really important area. And then... Uh, Cybersecurity and our assets in space. Um, personally, I'm not a huge um, fan of, of the concept of a space force, but I completely agree that um, the assets that we have in space are critically important um, for a variety of reasons. And I think they, both the cyber and the space aspects of our defense budget and our defense strategy, are going to become increasingly important um there has always been a bit of a bipartisan agreement on um defense i do anticipate again if there is uh, at least one um part of congress that gets controlled by the democrats that there will be stepped up oversight of this administration and probably some competing priorities Uh, for funding particularly on nuclear weapons as well as uh, some of the other weapons programs but I do also anticipate that at the end of the day uh, we will continue to see some bipartisan defense consensus um, on defense funding hopefully with an increased dialogue about what the overall national strategy should be for defense and in the next couple of years.
1: Okay. I'd like to hone in a little bit on something that you said there. Sure. You, you were talking about how maybe historically um, Americans are used to conflict that has a hard start date and has a more or less hard end date. I think that we would say that, you know, September 11, 2001 was a more or less hard start date for our current conflicts. Mm-hmm. But the idea that a hard end date is, is just not going to be the case is something that Um, I think a lot of Americans are kind of trying to come to terms with, figure out where they stand on it. Do you think that a shift in power um, in Washington would accelerate that conversation or shift that conversation? Or is that just the new reality?
0: I think you may see an end date in a particular location. But in the same way that you have seen um, as... Al-Qaeda has um, been, um, its power has been reduced partly by uh, the ongoing fight with American forces and partly by dynamics in the regions where it's been located. You then saw the rise of ISIS. Um, You know, there are endemic and systemic forces in a lot of part of these regions that, give rise to these groups. You've got Boko Haram in, in Africa, you have other smaller groups. I'm not um, you know, a deep expert on terrorism, but I suspect that you will see groups continuing. I think the debate that needs to happen at some point when the Congress is ready to have it is which of these groups has the the capacity to do harm against American forces and the American homeland. And that's a hard thing to do a a real assessment about because there are um, alliances that get built among these groups and ones that don't seem Terribly threatening when they start can become so over time. Um, and some of it is a level of effort question. Uh, you know, if you're talking about a total of, and I'm just picking a number here, 2,000 special operation forces spread over the globe doing limited amounts of work, I think that's potentially for the American people different than 20 to 30,000 troops, uh, where you have continuous rotations of people with families impacted. And I don't know where the, you know, where the dividing line is. I think that's part of the conversation. The more, um, policy wonkish question, you know, for a podcast like this goes back to that original piece of legislation that was passed four days after 9-11 that gave the president the authority to go after the people who um, attacked the American homeland on 9-11 and those who gave safe harbor to those groups and supported them. I have watched over time, as have many people, as the lawyers in the Pentagon and elsewhere have contorted themselves trying to find a way to take new um, actions that that the military has needed to take against ISIS and elsewhere under that existing authority. Um, And it's hard because you know, did the Congress on the 15th of September of 2001 intend for this to be used in Niger in Africa? No, not on that day. I mean, many of us, including me, were were there at that time. Could it be construed to include that? Yes, many have, have made that argument. Um, and many are trying to have that conversation again of, do we want to continue under this format or do we want to say something new? That's a hard question. You know, from a policy perspective, that's, you know, what ideally you would have a conversation about 17 years later. But, you know, we'll see if it happens. But no, it's it's not, I don't see a hard stop necessarily. I mean, if there's going to be a hard stop, it will be a, political hard stop of either because I mean you might see it in a single country Iraq or someone might say thank you very much but you know we're ready for American troops to to you know be done Um, or you might have a president or the congress together say we're ready for troops to come out of wherever but you know I don't I don't think you're gonna have another moment like President Bush did on the aircraft carrier of Mission Accomplished mm. for the entire effort against terrorism globally. I don't think that's the nature of um, a fight like this. Okay.
1: Do you think, and of course I, I don't expect you to you know have your <laughs> finger on the pulse of the mood of the American people, but do you, do you think? If only. I know, right? <laughs> Um, do you think that there's, um, there's an appetite for reining in that kind of... Uh, could you could see that you using this same kind of logic, mm-hmm. uh, you could just go endlessly tracking various groups down. Do you have a sense of maybe what the, the mood of the American people is in terms of reining that in?
0: Well, my sense is that we're in a different place than we were, say, in 2004 or 2006 when we had well over 100,000 troops deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the American people were extremely concerned where it was a factor in, say, the midterm elections of 2006, where the Democrats took back the House. I mean, it was not the major factor, but Um, I was in the House of Representatives at that time, and we had a hearing with uh, General David Petraeus, who at the time was the commander in Iraq, and it uh, was—we had well over 100 reporters. I mean, we had to shift this hearing to the largest room um, on the side of the House of Representatives just because of the amount of press interest— Um, I mean, at that time, you had a lot more deaths. You had a lot more people um, from the National Guard and Reserve. A lot more communities affected. A lot more um, public opinion that this was too much. Uh, The numbers now are significantly reduced. So my sense is that there are other things that are more that are more more significantly on the minds of the American voters. But what I've said to this question is the members of Congress represent the American people on issues that are necessary, not necessarily on the top of their minds. So particularly those who sit on their Armed services committees and the foreign relations and foreign affairs committees still have a duty to think about these questions, even if the American people are focused on the economy or immigration or health care or whatever's primary on their minds. But I, no, I don't think it has the same primacy. I think when the Americans were killed in Niger... Um, that was a wake-up call for Americans, partly because of, of the dynamic that occurred between the president and the representative in Florida and the family, but partly because many members of Congress, much less the American people, didn't really realize that Americans were fighting, and in this case dying, in Africa, which is kind of my point about doing an assessment of where is the United States where do we have troops globally on missions to do with counterterrorism and is that still something that makes sense um, I'm not saying that it doesn't make sense I'm saying that you know and I think Congress has looked at it a bit more since that incident but I don't think the American people think about it day to day but They sure thought about it when those young men were killed.
1: Sure. Sure. So from 1998 to 2001, you served on the US Commission on National Security, 21st century.
0: Otherwise known as the Hart-Redman Commission.
1: Yes. And the aim, and correct me if I'm mischaracterizing this, but my understanding is that the aim of that was to try and foresee in what ways national security threats might change in the 21st century and assess how well or ill prepared we were to address those threats. Now, it, it seems to me like that would be a very difficult thing to do. It's kind of like an exercise of thinking of the thing that you haven't thought of yet. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that process look like, and how can we apply it to the current uh, situation internationally?
0: Well, it was it was a very in-depth process. Uh, typically commissions, with the exception, say, of the 9-11 Commission, which was a very different exercise, um, typically commissions last for you know nine months, maybe a year. This commission was set up by then President Bill Clinton and then Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, which for people who know the history of, um, of that time, you know, to have that kind of bipartisan agreement was rather remarkable. And when Speaker Gingrich stepped down as Speaker, he joined the commission and was very much a driving force um, in a bipartisan, um, among the bipartisan group of members. But basically it was broken down into three features. What do we think the world's gonna look like in 2025? And as you point out, this was started in 1998. What's the strategy that the United States should take in that intervening 25 years to be effective by 2025? And that strategy was was definitely not military forward. It was economic, diplomatic. It had a military component, but it was not military only or forward. And then the third piece, the most extensive piece, was how should the American government be changed to make it more effective? So that was um, there were recommendations to the State Department to make it more effective at a regional level, to correspond with the military, which has a regional structure, which um, many argue. Uh, puts the military in a better position relative to state to um, uh, make regional policy. It had recommendations about the civil service and how uh, that should be changed. It had some recommendations. Uh, I don't remember the specifics at this point. It was a number of years ago about military service and how that might be changed. It Three years, well, At the time that we put these recommendations out i guess it was about nine months before 9-11 recommended the creation of a department of homeland security with a fair amount of detail and when that was taken up on the hill after 9-11 they actually took a lot of the um, um specifics from the commission to take a look at in in building the legislation that ultimately was passed um it stated, and it was a point of a lot of debate between the commissioners, whether the first threat that should be put forward was China mm. or the threat of a terrorist attack on the homeland. Ultimately, terrorist attack on the homeland was put first. Again, this came out nine months before nine eleven. So there was a lot of debate. I mean, I was the head of the research staff, and so Uh, We did a lot of in-depth travel. We talked to a ton of experts. Um, We didn't get everything right, but there was an attempt to look at trends and to try to foresee as much as possible what the world might look like that the United States was going to be contending with. Um, You know, we're not that far out from 2025. One of the things I'd like to do in a couple of years is to read through it and see (laughs) how close we came and (laughs) how far off we were, Mm -hmm. um, at least in terms of what the world might look on, look at. And then, you know, some of the recommendations, you know, at this point are, have been overtaken by, you know, events and some of them I think are still valid. Um, but you know, that's for future administrations to maybe look at or, or not, but Uh, As a first job out of graduate school, it was an incredibly interesting position. I'm sure. Yeah.
1: So, I know a lot of the things we're we're discussing are kind of um, things for policy wonks to kind of be excited about. Absolutely. That's great. (laughs) And I know a lot of our listeners uh, probably fall into that category. I'm curious though, for the average American, uh, somebody who maybe doesn't have the the time even to keep uh, a close eye on on really uh, in-depth policy changes some of the changes that we're seeing in national security, some of the cyber threats that are emerging, uh, why should it matter to the average person? Is it going to change their lives in any substantive way?
0: Well, I think the cyber threats are maybe the easiest ones for the average American to understand. I mean, certainly, um, you know, the, the news was extensive about cyber um, interference in in the presidential election. And if you put aside the you know, the interest, the issue of collusion, it has nothing to do with whether there was collusion of the administration or not with Russia. It's the idea that another country sought to interfere with and affect what should be only up to the American voters, and that's the outcome of an election. So, you know, that that's a pretty, um, uh, profound example. Um, and I think people can relate to it. Not that it, not that these examples of having your own kind of, um, bank account hacked or your own, uh, email account or your own Facebook account hacked. Um, but you can apply that and think, what about if, A national security system was hacked what about if the power grid was hacked you know what about if your water system was hacked um i think the cyber threats are perhaps the easiest for the american people to understand they are also the hardest i think for the government to do anything about Mm -hmm. not necessarily for something um like um protecting elections, although I think because you've got state, local, federal governments involved, it is complex, but certainly when you get into things like the grid and um, electrical systems and you know, so much of these things, I've heard many arguments that DOD should protect everything, and the reality is that's both impractical and, um, you know, kind of uh, private companies aren't going to let DOD come in and mm-hmm. <laughs> and run their systems. But uh, you can imagine the security challenges of if another country decided to take out power in a major metropolitan area. So, uh, you know, again, I think I think of of all the major challenges that we're facing, that's one that would affect people right home where they lived.
1: And I think probably um, another consequence is when you have a, a physical attack mm-hmm. on, say, American soil, like you saw on 9-11, mm-hmm. people become enraged and it becomes very apparent that there should be a military response. Correct. If you see um, a cyber attack that, uh, affects the American infrastructure. I guess my question is, at what point, if any, would that ever be considered an act of war?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's not, um, as far as I know, unless I don't know what work's been done inside this administration, but at least as it has not been well articulated yet, where that line might be. you know, certainly if it was a wide ranging attack and if it was an attack on a governmental system, like if the attack was on the White House or if the attack was on the Pentagon and it could be attributed, meaning if it could be tracked back and you knew for certain who the attacker was, I think that would be one thing. The challenge is, you know, knowing for certain where the attack came from. And again, I'm not an expert on uh, cyber attacks. And we have excellent people in the intelligence community who uh, are reasonably good at, at being able to tell those things. Um, but I think it's challenging. It's not the same as... I mean, we had to do work, obviously, t- to find out where the hijackers were from on 9-11. It took some time to attribute... The, they were, you know, 15 of the 19 were from Saudi Arabia, but they were coming from, you know, um, uh, Al Qaeda largely based in, you know, they were given safe haven in Afghanistan. I don't know if, if they took out the power system of say St. Paul, Minnesota, I don't know if we would consider that an act of war or not. Um, it's, it's an excellent question, but I think that that's one that's going to be increasingly important going forward if you look at it from a public policy perspective. So, you know, I would add that to your list of governance issues for 2019. I think it's a really important one.
1: Yeah. I, I wonder if that might fall under the category of uh, one of those things that you, you don't know that you've crossed the line until you cross the line. Right. It might have to happen before right. you would know.
0: I, I think it's a fair point.
1: So um, after 17 years of military conflict with an all-volunteer military force, mm-hmm. um, a very small portion of the population has borne a disproportionate amount of the brunt of these conflicts. Um, as someone with a vested interest in veterans policy and welfare, I'm curious to know what measures are being taken both for transitioning service members, mm-hmm. uh, but also for veterans to improve outcomes along you know, health, uh, housing and homelessness, and maybe even particularly mental health.
0: Well, there have in the 17 years that um, we've been uh, at war, there has been an increasing focus on, I would say all of those things. Um, I can speak most clearly from the Defense Department perspective, uh, because obviously, as I guess most of your listeners will know, There is a handoff that happens when a transitioning service member leaves the Department of Defense system and moves to the Department of Veterans Affairs system. So certainly the Department of Defense and the Department of Veterans Affairs have stepped up um, mental health resources and there's been an effort to um, reduce the stigma of service members getting help for post-traumatic stress Among other things, you know, famously, uh, General Carter Ham, four star army general, uh, came out and talked about his own post traumatic stress after multiple deployments talked about getting counseling to try to send a message from the top that it is okay to get help. And, um, and that people should. Um, All of these things are continuing issues. I mean, the healthcare system, Particularly on the VA side, for all the effort and all the additional money, still has a lot of problems and needs a lot more resources and leadership to uh, ensure that veterans, both of this generation and you know the Vietnam generation, is still with us. And uh, you know there's a lot of people that are. Reaching that critical age, um, so ensuring all the veterans from from the Vietnam generation through those who are recently serving get what they need. It's it's still a big problem, even with a lot of attention and extra resources being brought to it.
1: Sure, sure. Well, our time is quickly coming to an end. Yeah. I, uh, I I thank you for that. And uh, finally, any reading material recommendations for our listeners who might be interested in taking a deeper dive into issues of national security or military readiness?
0: Um, well, I would say, uh, there's, there's so many things, but, you know, uh, I would look at defense news online if you're really trying to like get current on, you know, a range of things, um, certainly foreign affairs, uh, if you're, you know, just trying to get a broader perspective on policy issues, uh, I don't get to read a lot of in-depth, books just because I'm trying to keep up with so many things. Uh, but I will put in a plug for a novel because if I do get to read, uh, I tend to try to get my brain to, to go in a different direction, um, called all our wrong tomorrows, because I tend to try to read, um, something that has nothing to do with foreign affairs. It's a little bit science fictiony. It's about, um, time travel and going back in time and changing timelines. And it's, um, it makes you think, but it's, um, It's kind of fun.
1: Aaron, thank you for your time.
0: Thank you very much, John.